The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today for our topic regarding employing students on F1 who are on CPT, OPT, and transition issues to H1B status. I'm honored and delighted to introduce to you all two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Adam Rosen, who's been with us almost 15 years at this point, a member and an assistant managing attorney, a brilliant, brilliant attorney whom I would not dare to challenge because if he knows regulations, we call him Mr. Regulations. Don't mess with him. He is absolutely brilliant when it comes to nuances and regulations that are happening. Uh, and in today's climate, it's happening and there are changes all the time. My other esteemed colleague is Allison Terry, who is in our non-immigrant department, another really smart cookie whom we are honored to call our esteemed colleagues. With that, let's focus on our topic topics for today. So we're going to discuss issues that arise when you employ a foreign national student, how you can need to make the transition to the H-1B status, and particularly for all of you on the call as employers, to ensure that you put, into, uh, put procedures in place to ensure compliance with both H-1B program and what you need to do to continue to employ F-1 students. Of course, we'll talk about the CPT, the curricular practical training, the OPT, the optional practical training for recent graduates. And um, if the employee has issues while working as a student, then obviously it will affect the USCIS approving the change of status to H-1B from within the United States, which could have repercussions on your ability to continue to employ the person because they may have to travel abroad for maintenance of status and other related issues. Uh, we'll talk about, and because all of these issues are actually pretty ever-changing and complex and just things are happening in this arena with memos and policy guidance and lawsuits, etc. We hope to share some of those latest trends with you. And we'll also touch upon this latest new registration system that the government intends to implement from 2020 onwards. Uh, so with that, Adam, if I could start with you, could you just sure. briefly touch upon any recent policies that affect um, companies regarding HF1 students? Sure, Sheila. So I think the biggest change is the registration. This came into effect January 30th of 2019, and USCIS announced um, earlier this year that it was going to actually be operational, and the registration period is going to be open from March 1st of 2020 through March 20th of 2020. Employers and their legal representatives will need to set up an online account at USCIS.gov to file the registration for a potential H-1B beneficiary. So in order to register someone to try and qualify for the CAP, uh, the employer would be required to provide certain limited information, it's not a lot, about this foreign national they want to, they want to potentially sponsor, pay a $10 filing fee to immigration, and that fee is per person they want to register. So if you want to register 20 people, you're paying $10 per 20, for, the 20, for each of the 20 people. 
As of this recording, USCIS has only scheduled a series of webinars to talk about the registration process. Uh, if you already have a USCIS online filing account and you go to the form, the file a form online section, you'll actually see at the top of that list of available forms is something that says H1BR, H1B registration. And this appears to be where the registration form will be available, but currently it's a dead link. So USCIS has not yet said when people can start actually drafting the registration form. Uh, but once this registration process happens, DHS has said that employers will be notified by email about the selection and then uh, you'll have 90 days to file the CAP petition from April 1st for an October 1st start date. Wonderful. Thank you, Adam. That is very helpful since this is all fairly recent information just from uh, just effective, like you said, after January 30th. Uh, that uh, actually as of January 30th that the DHS published this final rule. So let's go on to the employer's ability to hire students uh, on the F1 curricular practical training. I'm going to ask you, Ali, uh, to describe or explain a little bit of the F1 CPT. Of course, we're seeing a lot more RFEs, requests for evidence and denials when students try to do the F1 day one CPD or when they are doing CPT after conclusion of the OPT, etc. But I'm sure you're going to discuss all, some or all of those issues um, yeah, for our audience. Absolutely. So CPT or curricular practical training is actually intended for students who are still pursuing their course of study. So these are students who are still actually actively in school. Uh, one of the primary requirements for CPT is that the training is integral to the part to, excuse me, is an integral part of the established curriculum. So generally, the training will meet this requirement if the student is registered for an academic credit for this training. So they get credit in school for doing the training itself. Um, one big requirement for this is also that there needs to be some form of an agreement between the school and the employer, usually called a cooperative agreement. Uh, and also on top of that, the student usually needs to be enrolled full time for a full year of academic study before they can actually do CPT. Um, like most things in immigration law, however, there are a couple exceptions, which Adam is actually going to talk about. Right. So if the program of study specifically requires hands-on practical training during the first year, then CPT authorization would be appropriate in that first year. So there are very few programs that actually require this kind of training. For example, an MBA program, some engineering programs that actually require that as part of getting the degree that a person actually have this practicum experience. Uh, and secondly, if the student transfers to a new program of study and there was no interruption between the two programs, then the time that the person accumulated prior to coming into this new program can count towards meeting that one-year requirement to qualify for CPT. The, so the, this CPT authorization is not coming from USCIS, which is why people will sometimes run into problems in the H-1B petition. It's just issued by the DSO with the Form I-20 that has that information but USCIS is not involved in the process for approving CPT. Except when it comes to change of status down the road and that's when they go after you for exactly. various situations. Exactly. Okay, thank you, thank you both. So Ali, if I can jump back to you again. So what are the most important so common problems or the common issues that we are seeing now 
uh, with CPD, some mm -hmm. kind of typical scenarios or examples may help? Sure, so one typical scenario would be a student who transfers to a new program after having graduated from a different program and working on OPT after graduation. So in order to keep working in this case, uh, when there aren't any other options available, for example, H-1B was not filed or the H-1B was denied, something along those lines, um, the student would go back to school and obtain work authorization through CPT, uh, usually during you know, the first semester. So a lot of people will refer to this as quote unquote day one CPT. Um, it's not technically prohibited by the rules because it's not immediate CPT. Since a student already was on F1 in the previous program and uh -huh. was in it for more than a year, uh -huh. technically it's not first day CPT. Um, what happens though is the government will still decide to take issue with this because they often find that the CPT is not actually required or integral to the program and therefore doesn't meet the regulations. Uh, USCIS on this basis may then find there to have been a status violation. Um, typically when this comes up, USCIS will ask for evidence of the co-op agreement and proof that the CPT is integral to the program. So we generally recommend that employers make sure that the student's major program of study is actually directly related to the field of employment. So someone with a mechanical engineering degree probably shouldn't be doing an IT job while on CPT. Um, the employer should also um, be aware that issues with CPT arise when a student is pursuing an MBA with a concentration in IT and then is training as a software and engineer. So concentrations in minors generally should not be considered as a basis for CPT. Okay, thank you very much, Ali. And it's important to again stress that while on F1 CPT, the student must maintain full-time enrollment as a student. Generally, what happens is that the student uses the CPT as a mechanism for employment authorization so that the student can continue to work, for example, after the one year F1 OPT, then the two years um, STEM extension, and now they didn't get picked in the lottery after three year attempts, so now they want to continue to work. So you're not supposed to generally use the CPT for this so-called day one CPT just to keep working. And the important thing is the student is supposed to pursue a course of study and the goal should be the education and the course of study and not employment authorization um, on day one CPT uh, because that's, that's why the USCIS is going after such cases. Okay, so let's change gears a little bit, Adam, and go now to the OPT or the optional practical training. So, sure. Um, OPT, unlike CPT, doesn't have the same kinds of problems. It has its own unique features. It does require authorization from USCIS. Uh, it's not employer-specific, and it's only going to be issued for a one-year period. And so it could be authorized before and after the completion of study uh, for a maximum of uh, 20 hours per week when school is in session. That, that's what you can get before completing study. Um, OPT has to be directly related to the student's program of study. So if you've gotten your degree in mechanical engineering, like Ali was saying, the OPT work needs to be related to that, that degree. Uh, the, um, it's subject to essentially a, a, 
rule regarding the full the one year of full academic year of full time enrollment before it can be authorized. And the student cannot start uh, work until the USCIS has actually issued the EAD card. Um, even if the card is not coming until after the requested start date, the receipt notice is not enough. You need to have the actual card. And so while an OPT, it's important to keep in mind that you cannot accrue more than 90 days of unemployment, um, but the 90-day unemployment maximum count doesn't start until the EAD is issued. So if a person has not actually been issued the EAD card, even though it's after the first day that's been requested, the person the person does not start um, unemployment because they haven't started working. They're not required to start working. They're actually prohibited from working because they haven't actually received the EAD card. Right, right. And the other issue that I think that often comes up is what about uh, you know not getting paid, volunteer work, all that stuff. Right. There's been a lot of debate, exactly. a lot of discussion on that. The main issue there <laughs> is that an OPT as opposed to STEM OPT can, does allow for unpaid employment, but it does have to be something that is actual genuine unpaid employment and not simply an effort by an employer to uh, avoid paying a wage. And this is something that USCIS has started scrutinizing more closely. And it is a good idea to have some kind of documentation. So if someone is doing an internship um, with a company as that is unpaid, maybe you know having them log in timesheets, something that or agree, an agreement that covers the terms and nature of what's being done in the internship so that later when immigration comes and issues an RFE on an H-1B petition asking for proof for pay, wages for payment of a salary, you can say, oh, he had an internship, she had an internship, and this is proof of what was happening as well as that it was Routinely with that employer for all their employees, foreign exactly. nationals and U.S. workers, because the one thing that really annoys the government, of course, is it should not violate labor laws and it shouldn't be just to, because the whole idea right. is Department of Labor wanting to protect foreign national workers so that they don't depress the wages and working conditions for U.S. workers. Okay, let's now switch to, so the OPT is generally far more flexible compared to the STEM OPT. So now, right. Ali, let's have you briefly discuss the STEM OPT. What is that? Sure, so STEM OPT is basically, it's a 24-month extension of the OPT for students who graduated with degrees in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, the one major difference between OPT and STEM OPT is this actually requires that the employer design and implement a formal training program. So they have to show this is how we're going to train this individual, this is what we're, you know, kind of training we're providing on this location, etc. And you actually fill that all out on a form I-983 and you should hold on to that and because USCIS loves to ask for it. Right. And again, we're going to briefly touch upon some of the issues that we've already sort of discussed amongst Adam, Ali, and myself today is the concerns or the problems or the issues that we are seeing with OPT from USCIS in particular is where a student exceeds the unemployment maximum time, which is 90 days maximum in the first one year. And for the entire next two, two years, you're only given an additional 30 days. So it can't exceed the 120 day total. Second, the employment is, if it is not directly related to the program of study, I think they both discussed, you know, an engineer, an MBA person doing engineering work or vice versa. Third, the STEM OPT training when it's a third-party work site. We've talked to a lot of our clients that are consulting companies are dealing with these issues, greater scrutiny, more RFEs, very, very aggravating because there's no actual law on this and there's not even proper regulations. There's just half-assed attempts 
by the government to kind of stick stick the companies with penalties. Fourth, if there's unpaid employment during the first year OPT and the government believes it's in a, it's some sort of a violation of labor laws or uh, worse, that it was unpaid initially, which itself may raise a red flag, but now they try to continue doing that work while on STEM OPT. Again, it's clearly not permissible and is a very big red, red flag. So with that, let's transition on to issues dealing with the H-1B, H-1B cap. Adam, I know most people are aware of the cap and cap numbers, but why don't we just briefly touch upon it for anyone who may be new? Sure, it's a good idea. So the H-1B cap is an annual limitation on the number of new H-1B workers. It is set at 65,000 for use starting from October 1st. Uh, and so <coughs> there's a set aside of a few thousand for citizens of Chile and Singapore. Additionally, beyond the regular H-1B cap, there are 20,000 slots specifically set aside for people who have completed a master's degree or higher from certain U.S. schools. And so in the next fiscal year, starting October 1st, we are expecting that the demand for the visas will continue to be high. And so which will probably result in the, the lottery that will happen during the registration period using up all the available numbers. But as we mentioned earlier in this teleconference, starting this year, USCIS is running registration from March 1st to March 20th. That will uh, be what actually uh, collects the information to run the lottery. And when uh, someone is selected for a lottery, gets a lottery number, they'll have 90 days to file the petition with USCIS from April 1st. And so that HME petition will um, be filed with that selection notice, but it will be filed requesting a start date of October 1st. It can't request a start date earlier than October 1st. Correct, correct. And I guess depending on when they get back to us, for example, if the government only gets back, let's say on April 15th and the employer hasn't filed the LCA, et cetera, then we could, it might be April 15th. So it's just the earlier, the earliest can be October 1st, but it could be later. Right, theoretically it could be later that you file your petition. You're gonna have 90 days, unless there's some kind of issue that makes, gives a reason that you need to file it uh, early in April, as soon as you can. You'll have- You mean like when somebody is a disparate for cap gap kind of Let's say there's a cap gap issue that might be a reason that a person can file sooner. Or maybe someone's on, let's say, you know, an EAD, like an H4 EAD, or maybe someone has an L2 EAD, it happens sometimes, and you have a full 90 days, there's not as big a rush to file it at the beginning of April as every year, because if you have an L, if you, let's say you're on L2 status and you have an EAD card that gives you work authorization to sometime in, let's say, 2021, there's no reason that you have to file it the first week of April. If you have 90 days and you have status through October 1st, you can you know, file it at day 45 and right. request the change of status from October 1st. October 1st or whatever, even or, later, or, three months or later. Or potentially later, yeah. Okay, sounds good. So what about who is subject to the cap or who is cap exempt, Ellie? Right, so the first thing we typically look at is has this beneficiary actually held HMB status previously? Right, and if so, were they counted in the lottery, or maybe did they work for someone who was cap exempt? If they were previously counted in the lottery, they usually aren't subject to the cap again. Um, the next determination is, you know, determine if the employment itself is cap exempt. So there are some types of employment, some employers who are exempt from the cap, and therefore you can file and work for them and not have and have never basically gone through the lottery. Um, this will include employment at universities and their nonprofit affiliates. 
as well as nonprofit and governmental research organizations. But not all nonprofits. It just depends. So it's basically mm -hmm. universities and they're with nonprofits. Like if the nonprofit is affiliated with the university. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're looking at nonprofit and government research organizations. So it's pretty limited. Mm -hmm. um, I always tell people if they think they qualify, ask an attorney. Um, another thing to consider is that physicians who have obtained waivers through the Conrad program are also going to be considered cap exempt. So these are J1 physicians. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next issue which we talked about, of course, are the complications and the risks that we could potentially see because of the new timings with registration, um, what happens to students, cap, cap issues for those who thought that their prior F1 OPT was expiring, let's say, in May, and they would file the uh, H1 petition, the CAP subject petition by April 1st, and they were protected till September 30th of that year as long as the petition was pending and had not been denied. Well, now with this new registration, we don't know when the government's going to notify us the, uh, regarding, you know, the, when the USCIS will notify the employer about, okay, it's time and you have 90 days. And as Adam and I were just discussing, we may have to file right away if there's a need to file within that time frame. Exactly. They said they would <coughs> notify everybody right away, but who knows what's going to happen. And mm -hmm. so uh, the important thing to keep in mind, and, and this is what we've been telling people who contacted us, that if you have a grace period or OPT or something that's expiring uh, in that first couple of weeks after April 1st, uh, you it's a good idea to prepare your entire HOB petition as soon as possible because just the logistics of getting your LCA done could take a week to two weeks and oftentimes at that time of year DOL's LCA system has all kinds of problems and so that could cause even further delays so if you have because you only get your cap gap work authorization if the HMB petition is filed before the end of the work authorization and cap gap before the end of the grace period so you know if someone has a situation with a potential employee or an existing employee that they want to potentially file an H-1B petition, even though it's great that you just pay $10 and you'll know whether or not a person is selected for the cap or not, waiting until USCIS says, oh, you've been selected or not, it might be too late to file an H-1B petition that would let the person take advantage of cap gap. Exactly. And then, like you said, if they're filing it during the grace period, then they are technically not legally, they're allowed to stay in the U.S. but cannot work exactly. and there are restrictions. So, okay, so let's go in. So, Adam, let me ask you then, what do the CAP-GAP provisions actually provide? What does it mean? So, it says that if you have a timely filed H-1B case with a request for change of status, okay, not consular processing, and it requests a start date of October 1st, so this year it's October 1st, 2020, and, and it's filed before your work authorization ends, then your work authorization will continue through the end through the end of September. Okay, Allie, did you want to add something? Sure. Something else to keep in mind is, let's say you don't have work authorization, but you're in that 60-day F1 grace period. Like Sheila mentioned, you do get the ability to remain in the U.S. while the case is pending, but you you don't have work authorization. So a lot of times, people in those scenarios will end up you know changing and ending up on CPT. Um, uh, also consider the fact that in order to be eligible, the F1 student has to have not otherwise violated their status. So if you worked when you weren't supposed to work or you've somehow violated your F1, you're not eligible for CAP-CAP. And also, if the F1 student gets CAP-CAP, 
the F2 student status is automatically extended. Okay, and next we'll just briefly touch upon what events affect the maximum period of the CAP-CAP extension. So the International Student and Exchange Visitor Program that we've talked about, the SEVP, which is considered a part of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, is in charge of student tracking, and they provide very detailed guidance on specific dates of termination of F1 status, which are triggered by certain events. And so this guidance can be used as a point of reference if you as an employer is now trying to determine whether the employee can benefit from cap gap extension and how it, it would apply to your particular employee. For example, if the petition is properly filed before the expiration of the initial OPT, then this alone would extend a student's OPT period until there is a decision, the case is processed, accepted, approved, et cetera, in the future. Right, and it, but the, the important thing to keep in mind, especially this year, is that if a worker is selected through registration, but the employer does not file the age from petition, the student does not get cap gap. Uh, it's it just, it is important. This is a, it's a big change, and it's important just to keep in mind that the selection and the registration does not give you cap gap. Um, the petition has to actually be filed. But it, the other thing I would just also say to keep in mind is that this does sometimes happen from time to time that even if a person has um, gotten CAPGAP um, with that status or perhaps the work authorization extended to September 30th, if the petition is withdrawn or denied, so if the employer withdraws the HMA petition or USCIS denies it before September 30th, the CAPGAP um, OPT ends 10 days after the date of withdrawal or denial, and then the, the student would have a 60-day grace period after that withdrawal or denial date um, but it's not entirely clear what the stu student is entitled to if the petition is withdrawn or denied after September 30th. We've seen over the years different different uh, courses, different decisions made by USCIS, by ICE, um, SEVP on whether or not they consider the student to be in F1 status and entitled to a grace period. Sometimes people have tried to get reinstated back into SEVA so that they can continue maintaining F1 status in school. This kind of thing changes from year to year and depends on uh, USCIS and ICE getting on board the same, uh, same choice. So after September 30th, it's important just to keep in mind that you may not have a grace period. Yeah, pretty scary. So yes, be strategic, be proactive. What about how will the students and the employer know that they have CAP-CAP extension? Do they have to request CAP-CAP extension while filing the H-1 petition, Allie? So CAP-CAP isn't something that you specifically request, right? If the person is on F-1 and they're getting set to, their status is gonna expire. Um, if you file it, the H-1B CAP case with the change of status, you're basically automatically saying, I want CAP-CAP. So there's no way to really request it. It's just kind of automatic. Um, what'll happen is you file the case for a change of status as long as it's timely filed then USCIS will receipt the petition, they'll issue that official receipt notice, and the information in the system is going to update, and that's gonna update the CVIS record, uh, where it should, basically, you should be able to get the DSO to generate you, give you a new I-20 that says cap, gap, work authorization, whatever it may be, actually on the I-20. There is some times where something happens in the system, it doesn't work, so students should check in with their DSOs, 
and verify that the CBIS record has indeed been updated. Um, students also will not be personally notified if the H-1B is withdrawn or denied. So they should make sure to stay in contact with the employer and their DSO to kind of be on top of what's actually going on with that pending petition. Okay, and what about the issue, Adam, if I can jump mm -hmm. to you, if should the student obtain any new I-20 form from the school or the DSO to reflect the fact that the student is in a period of cap-cap? So in some cases, it's a good idea. If CVIS is not reflecting the fact that the H-1B petition was filed with that change of status, then the DSO really would need to issue a new I-20 to show that the student is eligible for the, the cap-gap and the, the extension of the F-1 status. And that, that I-20 showing the cap-gap cap -gap and work authorization is enough for employment purposes and to complete an I-9 form. Wonderful. Okay, thank you. Good to hear some good news in all of this. That's yes. straightforward. Okay, so Ali, let's move on to you. Can a student who is the beneficiary of an H-1 petition, the employee, which has been filed for a change of status, benefit from an automatic extension if the petition is filed during the grace period after the completion of the OPT employment authorization? Will the person just be able to continue employment or will it only extend the grace period um, until October 1st employment start date? So yes, there's an automatic extension of the F-1 status, but unless they had OPT at the time of filing, there's not an extension of work authorization. So you have to have the actual OPT when you file. And keep in mind here, the keyword is at the time of filing, not at the time of registration or selection. So it's really important to remember it's, registration does not get you that continued cap cap. Excellent point, because people will say, oh, I have 90 days, uh, according to the USCIS, to file my H-1 petition. Yes, you have 90 days to file the petition, but now you cannot continue working if your mm -hmm. OPT work authorization has already expired. And once the H-1 OPT is approved with the change of status, the student actually is not allowed to continue uh, in F-1 OPT status and use the remaining time because some people say, oh, I just wanted to see if I would get selected, but I've got two more years or one and a half more years. Well, if your H-1B started on October 1st, then you're on H-1B status, especially if your change of status was approved with the tear of I-94 card at the bottom of your approval notice. And you cannot now go back and say, well, I want to get back my old F-1 OPT because that is not restricted to one employer. I would rather have freedom of choice, blah, 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 you can't do that. Um, so on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us in today's teleconference, and we really look forward to continuing to take good care of you in this coming year. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.